the Colonial Pipeline breach and shutdown. What does it mean for South Carolina businesses and consumers? Let's go to the bench. Legal news, information, and interviews from Collins and Lacey, a leading South Carolina defense firm for construction, workers' comp, hospitality, retail, trucking, professional liability, mediation, government, and ethics matters. The views expressed by the guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect that of Collins and Lacey, its management, or employees. This is The Legal Bench. And welcome to The Legal Bench. I'm Michael Burney, Director of Business Development at Collins and Lacey Law Firm in Columbia, South Carolina. In the midst of the Colonial Pipeline shutdown, Collins and Lacey attorney Christian Stegmeyer sits down with two industry leaders who will be key to keeping the Palmetto State fueled. Joining Christian today is Michael Fields. For 15 years, Michael has served as the executive director of the South Carolina Convenience and Petroleum Marketers Association. Also with Christian is Rick Todd, president and CEO of the South Carolina Trucking Association. A cyber attack forced the largest United States fuel pipeline to shut down last Friday, and analysts are worried that this disruption could result in a spike in gas prices. The Colonial Pipeline system spans more than 5,000 miles from Texas to Pennsylvania and transports about 45% of all fuel consumed on the East Coast. It transports 2.5 million barrels per day of gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and home health oil. And that's according to CNN earlier today. I received an email this morning from Michael Fields um, telling us about how yesterday afternoon uh, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration declared a regional emergency that included South Carolina in response to the cyber attack on Colonial Pipeline. The FMCSA declaration provided for hours of service relief for fuel transports. As well, Governor McMaster has issued an executive order that includes transportation waivers. In addition to hours of service and order, the order gives relief for registration, permitting, length, width, and weight of commercial vehicles operating under the order. So let me start first. Let me ask a question to Michael Fields of the uh, South Carolina Convenience and uh, Petroleum Marketers Association. What is the latest you're hearing about the status of the pipeline getting up and running again? That's the, the million-dollar question that, uh, that nobody really knows the answer. The, the last thing I saw uh, this afternoon was that it is Colonial's hope that they're going to be back um, in full operation by the end of the week. Uh, that would be good news, but, I'm, you know, there's a lot of work that has to be done, a lot of hoops they have to jump through on the federal and state government level to get there. So folks like me, um, I'm just looking at the Internet, maybe the New York Times or CNN for information. Um, is there anything that you're able to get or is there anything that you're privy to that ordinary folks not, might not be able to get to or might be able to see uh, to get information about the operation uh, of the pipeline? I think the thing that I'm trying to get right now is to find out what the impact is on my job or members and on my retailers. I mean, how has the, the shutdown affected them? What are they worried about? And I will say that they, obviously there's some concern about getting product, getting supply. Right now they're fine. Um, there's some concern about later on this week that if they don't get restarted, there may be some supply issues in the state. Um, you know, the good news is we have other options. We're not 100% uh, 
dependent on that pipeline. There's another pipeline, uh, the plantation. It's a smaller uh, footprint, but it's still there. And also we have our waterborne terminals in Charleston. We can also uh, reach into Savannah, Wilmington. Those, those are right now the things that are saving us. And so um, you got to have some extra security measures to get into those terminals. But those jobbers that do, that's what's keeping product coming into South Carolina right now. So both for your, your members on the retail side as well as the consuming public, they can be comforted by the fact that there seems to be a plan B and a plan C even. Those plans, plans B, C, D, and beyond were being drafted and starting to be implemented on Friday when the, when the news first started. Um, that hit full force over the weekend. So with the governor's uh, order, um, there was also mention about the anti-gouging uh, provisions that exist in our statute, as well as previous orders that had been issued in um, the pandemic. Talk a little bit about that. The, uh, our, our price gouging laws kick in when there's a state of emergency uh, or there's a what's called an abnormal disruption of the products, and that comes from the attorney general side. Uh, those are the two instances where our price gouging laws come into play, and they have been in play since March the 13th of last year, continuously. So every 15 days, Governor McMaster has issued a new executive order, and the one that you're referencing is just another one that he has been doing since March. Um, I had several calls about that again because I, I reminded our members again that those, those laws are intact in, in and they need to, to make sure that they can justify all their pricing decisions. And that's the key is that you're going to see, if you see a price increase and that petroleum market or that retailer, that jobber can show that it is a direct result of something that's happened. There's no, there's no price gouging involved. They just need to be able to show the state that that's what's happened. And that's what I reminded them again of the bright and early this morning. And has it been your experience when, when you're able to give that type of communication and that kind of directive that folks are pretty compliant? They are uh, because, well, you don't want to tick off your customers. Uh, you know, they get a lot of, they're, they're honestly, they're accused of price gouging probably 365 days a year. And so uh, that's just not the case. But they just need to be able to, to show that if they are brought up on some kind of price gouging charge, that they can back up the pricing decisions that we've, um, that they've gotten. And we, we just remind them, keep your records. That's right. Spoken like a true lawyer there. <laughs> So Rick Todd of the South Carolina Trucking Association, let me ask you this. Um, when, when something like this arises, uh, for instance, like with the Colonial Pipeline and the shutdown, what kind of pressure uh, does uh, a shutdown like this put on our trucking industry? Our guys are always under pressure. Yeah. Uh, it just depends on what kind, and this is just a new type. But, you know, you can't run a truck without fuel. So they are very, very sensitive to it. Not as much the price because that just fluctuates constantly, and I think that contributes to the the kind of the suggestion that Michael uh, made about the you know people criticizing the the retailers all the time because for no apparent reason to a consumer, prices just seem to fluctuate. They go up and they go down, and so um, truckers have base rates with a base cost of fuel built in, and then they use surcharge mechanisms to get it back. So that's not as big a concern. 
Um, but there is a lag from the time they pay a higher price until they can implement the fuel surcharge. Um, but the supply uh, is a concern. Most of the larger fleets have bulk storage capabilities or have uh, guarantees or, you know, price negotiations or agreements with the suppliers when their drivers purchase it at retail on the road at a truck stop or some other facility. Um, the smaller you are, the more subject you are to market fluctuations and retail price. Um, so it, it depends on what kind of operation you've got as to how it hits you. But um, their antennas pop up pretty quickly when they hear a disruption like this. Uh, frankly, we're kind of used to it. Uh, Michael alluded to it. Um, we have the transportation system, trucking particularly, has been um, has benefited, if you, if you call it that, from these waivers that are granted either by the federal government or by the state governments, um, whether it's compliance with hours of service, equipment, you know, inspection, rules and regulations, driver-related waivers, or size and weight types of waivers. Uh, they've been under some type of a waiver or emergency declaration literally for the bulk of time over the last four or five years. If you, if you, if you look back at what's transpired, particularly in our part of the country, between the hurricanes of a number of years ago, the floods, the thousand-year flood, um, other storms, winter storms, freezes and thaws, and then things like this with the Colonial Pipeline. Um, they're just adaptable businesses. They're used to the shock. They're used to it. But they don't really uh, want to look forward to a fuel stoppage or um, having a hard time finding it. So, And you had asked one more point. You had asked Michael about in our positions if we're privy to any kind of information. No, not really insider information, not, not like top secret or classified. But we do get, you know, reports from the Office of Regulatory Staff. Um, we get forwarded copies of somewhat confidential information from the Department of Energy and their state counterparts so that we can keep, keep things calm, you know, educate people and keep people from, you know, having a run on the store, something like that. Well, that, that, that's a really good point that the, the both of you brought up is that um, that public perception and, and public thinking about things like there's already enough tension right now about the the, bri the price of gas. You, you're, you've been reading about that for weeks on end uh, uh, leading up to this. Uh, uh, people were worried about inflation, and now they see this, and you've got headlines that say uh, gas could be pushed over $3 a gallon. And, of course, people are forgetting the fact that only several years ago it was $4.50 a gallon. So it could always be worse. <laughs> um, but um, They don't want to hear us say that. They I can don't, promise they, you that. They, they don't want to hear you saying that. But, you know, when we talk about the fact that um, there's a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, um, that's where both of your organizations become uh, really important and integral to the public conversation by being able to lend that voice and provide that education and and just that calming tone to the folks where they say, hey, listen, this isn't ideal, but there are backup plans. And the other thing, too, is this isn't permanent. Like Michael says, 
hopefully it'll be fixed by this week and things will be normal and we'll be able to resume just regular operations. Um, so I, I can see a, a lot of importance and efficacy in, in the two of y'all and your organizations being able to report to your memberships and use the various apparatuses that you've got uh, to get the word out about things. Um, let me ask this, and um, I appreciate y'all's time today. You talked a little bit about pressures, or I asked you a question about pressures, and I think you essentially answered, um, when is there not pressure? Um, one thing that I'm mindful of, and I, I'd like to hear y'all talk about, even, even thinking without the colonial pipeline, this is a pressure about workforce about workforce, whether there are enough people to drive trucks, or whether there are enough people to, to man the places where are loading the trucks. Uh, on the retail side, on the, on the seesaw side, or um, with, with regard to just the, the moving of petroleum, um, is it fair to say that both of your industries and both of your constituencies are facing real problems as it relates to workforce? You want the short answer? Or yeah. the, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll, read, I'll read an excerpt from an email I got from one of my members before I came over. And he just said, you know, we're doing all we can to, to get product to our stores and to keep it there. And our, our major oil company suppliers helping us do that. But things are compounded, quote, by the mess that is with our carriers, um, having problems with the drivers, the fact that this is the worst he's ever seen it. And it's, just, you know, it's bad just in general trucking. When you're carrying a hazardous material, like my members are carrying, they have extra things that they have to go through. So it is a tremendous pressure on petroleum transports right now. The hours of service waivers, why that's important, I'll tell you what one of my members in the upstate told me. Three loads that he got in the last couple of days that usually take him four hours to get and get gone took him 15 hours over the weekend. That's wait time and, and getting to the, you know, to, the, to the dispenser and hopefully there's some product left over. 15 hours. So under normal circumstances, if you don't have that hours of service waiver, that wait time counts against you. That trucker's got to go home. So the pandemic didn't help. I think a lot of folks, um, you know, one, one of the things we're seeing is um, they're not coming back um, like we need them to come back. Rick, you, you've got Absolutely. horror stories galore, I'm you sure. You know, we, we represent all the different sectors because, uh, you know, whether it's a private fleet running their own trucks or a for-hire company hauling freight for hire, um, they're all struggling for qualified drivers. Um, and it doesn't make the struggle any easier when they're not productive, so if they have to wait, um, that just discourages those drivers. They, they get frustrated with, with having to wait because in a lot, of, a lot of the sectors, they're only paid when that truck's rolling. Um, and the pay methodology is undergoing some change. A lot of companies have implemented minimum pay. Um, some are going by the hour. Typically, it's been a percentage of the load if you're an independent contractor like that long-haul guy or by the mile. And so to Michael's point, if, if their typical wait time, which they're kind of used to and, and are compensated for that, um, gets doubled or, heaven forbid, tripled or worse, then that really adds to the driver's frustration and it makes us 
even less attractive as a career and more uh, difficult to hold on to that driver. So what a lot of times when I talk with folks about problems or pressure that they're facing um, that are very real, I'll, I'll just ask the question. If you got to wave your magic wand and if you, if you got to select the fix, how do we make the fix? Because here's the thing. I mean, the economy is hopefully waking up. The country is waking up here. Um, I think you're seeing changes on a week-by-week basis about um, folks returning to work. But I think Michael makes a good point where, where I think the initial assumption was as, as the economy recovered, as, as everything got back to more normalcy, people would just return back to their old jobs. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. So how do we make it more attractive? Um, how, what is the fix uh, to get enough drivers on the road to, to move product? It's not an easy answer because there's so many moving parts. There's so many variables in, in keeping uh, the transportation, distribution, and logistics industry rolling at full velocity. Um, so many things beyond the driver's control, but also beyond the fleet's control, even beyond the tender of the load or the receiver at the other end. Um, and if all of those aren't performing as they should, which they rarely do, um, then it, it creates frustration for everybody involved and uh, reduces productivity and all that. So our customers have to be mindful of that and treat the drivers with respect, give them access to rest facilities if they need it, parking um, availability if they need it, if they're early or late, they miss a window, um, a restroom, water, or common courtesy. So the customers need to be cognizant of that so that the drivers suffer less stress and they feel appreciated. The companies have got to figure out a way to pay these guys um, for their time uh, because time is money, and the industry's coming around to that. Um, and we're seeing wages increase um, in one shape or another. You know, we're advocates for increasing capacity on the highways so that uh, the commerce can flow more freely um, and it's safer uh, for the driver. Um, and, you know, I think drivers need to know that, that uh, the legal system, if they make a mistake, if they have an accident, which are by and large caused by car drivers, statistics would tell you, but if they do you know, contribute to an accident, that they're not going to be uh, subject to being um, you know, hit with punitive damages in their lives and their reputations are ruined. It's, tr- it's traumatic enough to be behind the wheel of that truck and actually hit someone when you can't avoid it. Uh, but then you add insult to injury with uh, the way they're treated in a courtroom and uh, that, you know, dissuades people too. So uh, there are plenty of other things we could talk about, but uh, trying to make the job cooler too, somehow sexy. Well, not a whole lot I can add to what he said. I mean, I I think a lot of the things that he talked about on the trucking side, we're seeing it on the retail side on our our, on our convenience stores. Um, You know, it's it's finding and keeping that qualified person in there. It's about pay. It's about respect. It's about um, just a lot of hours. um, You know, making sure that people don't have to. uh, You know, I, I saw an interview of a. Uh, a business owner the other day, and and he he said I had to shut my business down because I don't have enough employees, and I was killing the ones that I did have. So he he didn't shut it down, but he cut it back, right. cut back some hours just to give his longtime 
dedicated, loyal employees an opportunity to go home every now and then. Um, Rick's right um, as far as the, the legal system. We're seeing that in our industry. We, are, we have a big bullseye, uh, uh, and, and it's there on the trucking side. It's there on the retail side, uh, and it's there. And all you have to do is drive down the interstate and look at the billboards or listen to the radio ads or pull up anything on social media, and you will see that our industry is, has a big bullseye on it. And you, as a state, when we pride ourselves on being pro-business, and yet we've got a legal system that has um, taken a segment of our business community and put it under that big uh, bullseye, there should be some concern from top to bottom in our state. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly <laughs> about that. Somebody represents these businesses on a day-in, day-out basis. I, I completely agree about that. Let me ask you this. So this is this is the bonus question. This is the bonus round since I've got you both in the room. And uh, you were talking about capacity. Uh, Rick, you were talking about capacity on the roads. One of my things is um, uh, infrastructure in this state. So this is the bonus question. What do we have to do to get a third lane on I-95 and I-26? Uh, I tell people sometimes it's kind of a joke. Uh, uh, you, you ask somebody from up north why they don't like the South so, uh, South Carolina so much, and they'll say, well, y'all started the Civil War and I-95. Um, and, um, you know, you, get, you cross over the Savannah River and you go from three lanes to two lanes, and I, we'll, we'll leave the condition of the road out of it, but just the very fact that you have to go down to that second lane, that slows down travel that much more. And you can see the same thing from Greenville to Charleston uh, on I-26. What do we have to do to encourage the General Assembly to get serious about infrastructure? Well, I'll go first on that one. Um, you talk about pressure. Well, Michael, in his position and me, myself, in my position, these are real pressure point issues because it all comes down to money and how quickly you can deliver the projects. Um, those two, uh, if you lived in the upstate I-85, they'd tell you, you know, despite all the work that's been done up there, there are times a day when you need it too uh, because it's it's wall-to-wall trucks being stuck between Charlotte and Atlanta, major markets like that, and all the manufacturing we've got. Uh, 26, it's going to be 10 years probably before we see all that corridor completed. The money is programmed, but it just can't be delivered because DOT has to spread their resources out around the state. They can't just concentrate it on one corridor. It is probably the most important corridor, though, and if they could use some of these federal funds that have been just given to the states, um, they could probably accelerate it. If they had $800 million from those federal stimulus funds, and I, and I can't think of a better real long-term stimulus than jobs rebuilding our highways. Um, they could shave six years off that project. Um, 95, I-95 is really a thoroughfare. And so, unfortunately, the state has really just been loathed to spend those precious highway dollars on I-95 because they think it's just through truckers and tourists. Um, but the uh, the southern leg of that from where the interchange is with I-26 and the Georgia line needs it. Um, DOT has programmed, it'll be a number of years, but they've programmed the first 20-something miles when it gets up to 17 from the Georgia border to 17 for six-laning. 
Um, that'll provide some relief and maybe a little bit of PR, you know, image enhancement, um, to your point about how, how bad it makes the state look. But um, it comes down to money. And the construction industry has to, to have the capacity to be able to deliver the jobs. When we were passing the, the finally passed after, what, 30 years, uh, an increase on the, the state um, motor fuel user fee, that's what they call it in the code. Um, you know, we, were, we warned folks that it's, gonna, it's not going to change overnight. And, and so people, you know, the same people that were fussing, I think, a lot of times on social media and uh, about the increase are the same ones that are now fussing when they see the, orange, you know, the slowdowns because they're, some of that money's starting to actually get out there. But, um, I mean, that was a tremendous fight. That Look, my organization opposed it forever. And it about scared the, the whole place of down when I testified uh, for the first time in its history that our organization would support a reasonable increase because it was impacting us. And, and it continues to do that because we're not, we don't have what we need in order to transact businesses from coast to coast and other states. We, we're not where we need to be and we've got to get there. Um, uh, Timing-wise, I don't know. You, you said how many years, Rick? Ten? Six? I mean, that's that sounds like a long time. Well, you know, every journey starts with that first step, and we're probably in the top two or three fastest-growing states in the country right now, and it's just something that has to happen uh, because of, and, and Rick was talking about, all the, especially the industry in the upstate as well as the industry that goes all the way from the upstate to the coast. You've got all those trucks on the road, too, and... You've got all these new people living here and new people doing business in South Carolina. And the reality is until we build a big, huge monorail, uh, and I'm being facetious about that, we're going to have to have the roads that accommodate all that traffic. Yeah, like Michael, I spent half my career fighting tax increases, and then I spent the last half of my career begging them to, to raise the fuel tax so that we could fund it. And it's never going to be enough uh, because the needs are just so great. Well, I appreciate y'all coming in. Michael Fields, South Carolina Convenience and Petroleum Marketers Association. Rick Todd of the South Carolina Trucking Association. We appreciate your insight uh, on the Colonial Pipeline as well. It's just the issues involving workforce and infrastructure. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having us. You enjoyed it. And for the latest legal news and information of interest to South Carolina businesses, join us right here for the next episode of The Legal Bench. You've been listening to The Legal Bench from the South Carolina defense firm Collins & Lacey. Learn more at collinsandlacey.com.